I believe there are two essential things about our church that I want to mention to you because out of these two essential things comes my preaching plan for these next few months. One is that we need knowledge that strengthens our faith. There is no replacement for the Word of God. We believe that God's Word is absolutely true, inspired, inerrant, infallible. I believe it from Genesis to Maps. And we're trying to build this church on the Word of God. That's how you can build your life on the Word of God. And so I'm going to begin preaching the first Wednesday night in October, the book of Romans, verse by verse. That's the theology book of the New Testament. That's the masterpiece of the New Testament. It covers basically everything. And I hadn't preached the book of Romans in probably 25 or 30 years. But I'm looking forward to preaching through it. And so make plans. We'll have study guides. And you can just learn a lot more about New Testament theology, hopefully. And that will strengthen your faith. Because we don't know what this world's going to do, but I tell you, we need, a, we need to be grounded in the Word of God's truth. The second thing, not only do we need knowledge that strengthens our faith, but we need relationships that soften our spirit. Relationships are so critical. Life is about relationships. And no matter what doctrine you have, it doesn't replace the need for authentic biblical relationships where people encourage, love, and accept each other. And so we want that to also be the kind of church we have that we love one another and we love all people and we are accepting and we are loving and we are encouraging and people can come here who've messed up and uh, feel at home and and get some help and find some healing and and uh, get a dose of hope and we want to make sure that uh, our unity is what God wants it to be that because when we're one o n e they, the lost, are one, W-O-N. So there's not anything better than having a church that's together and uh, enjoying those Christian relationships. So it's, it's out of that uh, feeling about those two essential things that I want to talk to you today, beginning as a foundation for this relationship series called Habits of the Heart. Because I think if you understand this, it will change every relationship that you have. I began with a statement, who is your daddy? In Alabama, we say, who is your daddy? The most important question facing the Christian and the non-Christian is simply this. Who is God? Who is God to you? 
In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Life is faith, family, and friends. Life is relationships. That's the bottom line. At the core of our being, no matter who we are, we all want to feel accepted. We want to feel loved. We want to feel appreciated. We want approval. And you know what I really believe? We're all searching for a father's love. We're searching for significance, satisfaction, security. And those are the things that come out of relationship. A couple of things I didn't put in your notes, but you may want to remember. Uh, number one is the key to life is relationships. Secondly, the key to relationships is the Father. The key to life, relationships. Ultimately, one day, all that will matter to you, I promise you, will be relationships. And the key to relationship is the Father. More than any other factor, if you have success in relationships, it's going to have to do with your earthly Father and number two, your heavenly father. A.W. Tozer makes this statement. It's, it's something for all of us to think about. He says, the most important thing about any person is what that person thinks about when he or she thinks about God. We could make it more personal. The most important thing about you, right here in this church this morning, each one of you, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Why is it so important? Because you were made by God and for God. You were born for His purpose. You were planned for His pleasure. He smiled at your birth. Your heart is beating for him. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. You and I were created by God and for God. And we find our purpose and meaning in life when we make God the focus of our lives. Here's what's important for you to get. The way you see God shapes and colors every relationship of your life. How you see God, your view of God, 
And when you walked into this room this morning, you walked in here with a view of God. You walked into this room with, with a private God under your arm. And that God that you carry has the greatest influence upon your relationships. And here's the sad part. Many of those private gods that you carry are not biblically true at all. Some of them are unloving and unkind, not like the Father God. Because here's what happens. You and I tend to project onto God the negative characteristics of the people that we look up to. And the Father, more than anyone else, our earthly father. So if there are things wrong with our earthly father, and by the way, there are things wrong with every earthly father, then we try to take those negative things and put them on to God. But let me tell you where we get our view of God. It comes from our parents, what they believed about God, or how they represented God, our culture. It comes from education. It comes from the church and, and the Bible. It comes from relationships and life experiences. So we all have a view, we have a perception of God. Let me just mention some common ones. The first is an absentee God. God created the world, and then he went on to do his own thing. He has other things to do, maybe other worlds to create. He's far, far away. There's not any way that he could be interested in, in you, in me, because he has a world to run. He's an absentee God. If I get in trouble, I can't get in touch with him. He's not going to intervene for me. And see, those of you who have an 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 absent father in your life tend to make God an absentee God. The second is an angry God. You kind of view God as a police officer who's trying to, uh, to catch you doing something wrong or a, a, a stern judge who keeps score and, and there's, everything is pouring to judgment day and, and and this angry God is pretty mad, and one day you're going to get zapped. You're going to get his wrath because it's all about performance. And you've made too many mistakes. Do you view God as an angry God who's out to get you? An abusive God. A God who takes advantage of you. A God who rejects you and a God who hurts you. A God you can't trust. A God who forces you to do things you won't do, you don't want to do. Where did that concept of abusive God come from? From someone who was abused or is being abused verbally, spiritually physically, sexually. And then we take those negative things and we put them over on God. And you see, if you think God is like, let's say your father abused you and you think God is like your earthly father and he's abusive, 
then you're not going to run to God, you're going to run from God. You're not going to trust Him. You're going to try to reject Him before He can reject you. And when you think of Him, you feel unwanted and unclean, cheap and worthless. And then there's the automatic God. That's the politically correct God. That's the whatever you want Him to be God. Santa Claus, fire department, call on him when you need him, museum where you just pass through occasionally, an automatic God that you're in control of, an ancient God. Your view of God is that God is really old. I mean, he is real old. He's not up to date. He's like a carton of milk that's way past the sell-by date. He doesn't know what's going on in this modern world. He can't help me with my modern problems and situations. He knows nothing about what's really happening now. He hadn't seen television lately. It's interesting that God does know what's going on. Everything that's going on. And then there's an awesome God. A God who is loving, who is kind, who is patient, who is considerate, who is protecting, who is giving. A God who knows everything there is to know about you. Who knows every wrong choice you've made, every bad decision, every sin you've ever committed, every mistake. And yet he says, I love you unconditionally. I want to give you the biggest hug you have ever been given. An awesome God. Now you carry a picture of God around with you in your mind. And unfortunately, that picture of God is usually based on a summary of your life experiences. And many of those experiences with an earthly father. And if you think God is absent or distant or too busy, then you're not going to spend your life in a close, intimate relationship with him. You feel unworthy of his intervention in your life. If you think God is old and out of touch, then you're going to live your life without him because you're cool. You're cutting edge. And God's out of date. If you're carrying around a picture of God as angry and could at any time explode and zap you, then you're going to live your life under a cloud of guilt and shame. And religion to you will be a matter of rules and regulations, not relationships. And your life will be covered by guilt, not grace. If you think God is ancient, then you will assume that he's absolutely clueless about the problems you're facing this very day and cannot come to your rescue, cannot help you work out of that situation. Well, you need to know that God 
knows everything about your life. He knows more about your life than you know. He knows every option you have, every choice you make, every consequence that you endure. But the good news is, God says, I want you to know me as I really am. See, you came in here with a picture of God. You had a God under your arm when you came in here. But maybe that God is a mixture of culture and of your own bad experiences or of a dad who is less than a perfect dad or maybe even an abusive dad. And so you're carrying around all of that and yet God says, I want to reveal to you who I really am and what I'm really like. He reveals himself in creation. 10,000 times a day you see God in creation. He's everywhere. He reveals himself in Christ. That's ultimate revelation. Christ came to reveal God. You see, God is not defined by your mind, your thought processes are mine. God is not defined by our circumstances. God says, no one can define me. I will tell you who I am. I will reveal to you who I am. It's up to me to show you what I'm really like. And he says, what I am about is that I want a relationship with you, a loving father with a loved child. That's what I want. That's what I'm about. In Hebrews 1, verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. So God is revealing himself. He has spoken to us literally as a son. So Jesus is not just a prophet and priest, but he is a son. The revelation of a son. You see, only a son can reveal a father. So Jesus came as a son. He is the exact representation of God. That means we ought to listen to him. We ought to hear his heart, see his character. Because if you want to see God, look at Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. So who can reveal the Father or the Son? He's the only one who knows the Father enough to reveal him. Verse 26 of John 17. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus said, I'm, I've come to reveal God. And Jesus didn't offer a definition of God. 
He didn't offer a PowerPoint presentation. What he did, he put skin on God and lived out life. You see, God knew that we couldn't get a hold of God. How do you, how do you get your arms around something eternal? How do you get a hold of something that's all-powerful, that's, that's omniscient, that knows everything, that's transcendent? How do you get your arms around the Trinity? God knew that we couldn't get our arms around Him, so He sent the Son. The Son reveals the Father. And so Jesus has come so that we could know the Father. Making his name known, says John. What name? Jehovah, Elohim, the, those wonderful names in the Old Testament that for centuries the Jews held on to. No, it's a brand new name that comes in the New Testament. God wants to be revealed. Yes, he is eternal God. Yes, he is ruler. Yes, he is redeemer. Yes, he is Lord. Yes, he is Yahweh. Yes, he is Adonai. Yes, he is Elohim. But in Jesus, he wanted to be revealed as Father. As our Father. We, his children... He is our Father. And so Jesus is described as Father six times in this one prayer of Jesus. As Jesus says, I have manifested your name. You know what the Bible is saying? Here's the message. We will know God best when we know him as our Father. Because you see, we all want a father. And Jesus was able to put a face on God, to put skin on God, to reveal him as Father. You see, Jesus came for two purposes one, to pay the penalty for our sins, and that is absolutely essential. He paid a debt he didn't owe. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. Jesus paid it all by, by pouring out his life, his blood on the Calvary's cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins. That's the first reason he came. But he also came to reveal God as Father. One, listen to me. 189 times just in the gospel... Jesus calls God Father. Father. He wanted us to know him as Father. He knew that what we wanted would be satisfaction and significance and security. And he knew that that would come out of a relationship with a perfect Father. Now, some of you here this morning have wonderful fathers, and thank God you do. And maybe they've led you toward God. Some of you have fathers not so wonderful. Some of you may have jerks for fathers, and excuse me for that, I don't know what else to use. 
but if you don't have a good father and you hear me preach like this, immediately you say, preacher, you're not helping me, you're hurting me. You're not blessing me, you're burning me. When you tell me God's a father, I don't want to hear any more because I've had it with fathers. I'm alienated from my father. I don't have anything to do with my father. And yet you're telling me that God is a father. See, we, we project our earthly fathers unto the heavenly father. And so if you've had an angry father or an abusive father or an absent father, absent by divorce or by death or, or even a, a father who just didn't take care of business, have you tried to make your heavenly father have those same kind of characteristics? So let me tell you what I found in 40 years of counseling. And I, I deal with women every year. I will talk to one or two or three women who are 40, 50, 60 years of age who have struggled their whole lives in relationships. And when you get to the root problem, it is always a father issue. If somehow we could, we could solve the father issues and reconcile with fathers, you'd have people getting well emotionally all over this country. Because if the father relationship is not what it should be, then that will color every relationship that you have. You see, I think everyone really wants a father's love and a father's approval. I believe that with all of my heart. Remember when Jesus was baptized? And by the way, we're going to have going public in a few days. And if you hadn't been baptized, you need to get in that group and go public. Jesus was baptized as an example for us. Surely we'd want to follow him in baptism. But had we been there on that day in the, in the Jordan River when Jesus was baptized by John and remember the dove and then the voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Wow. This is my boy. And I'm very, very pleased. I'm happy with him. I love him. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe every person in this room, if you haven't heard that, you desire to hear that from your father. If just my father would say, you did a good job. I'm proud of you.
I had the privilege to have a wonderful godly father who pastored churches for over 50 years. But he had some baggage. He grew up in the home of an alcoholic. He didn't know how to express love. He bought into the lie that if he would take care of the church, God would take care of his family. And so dad put the church before us. So when it came time for me to play ball, Daddy never came. And I tried baseball, and he didn't come. And I tried basketball, and he didn't come. And I tried football, and he didn't come. And I gave it all up. Two reasons. One, I wasn't too good. Nobody was begging me to stay. But Daddy never showed up. I went to, to college, graduated, but Daddy didn't show up. Always something at church. We didn't go on vacations. Two reasons. One, no money. Daddy passed at churches that believed if God would keep him humble, they'd keep him poor. And there was always something to do at church. So we didn't take family vacations. My daddy loved me. There's no, I've never doubted that. But I wanted to hear him say, I love you, and he couldn't do it. And after saying it several times to him and being rejected, I quit saying it to him for, for several years. But then I started saying it again, and I would say, Daddy, I love you, and he'd say, same to you. That was improvement. Same to you. But as I was writing a book on happiness and, and God was working in my own life, God began to show me some things about my own life and my own personality and my own struggles in relationships because of my father's baggage from his past and I was taking that and putting it over on God. And you see, I was trying to work seven days a week and sometimes I'd work all night and I was doing all these things because I, I was trying to perform enough that somehow daddy would have to say, you're doing good, I'm proud of you. There's a time in my life when I read three to five books a week. And you say, that guy is just, he is just a worker. But I realized a lot of it was still trying to get my father to say, you're doing good, boy. You're my son. And I'm very pleased. But he couldn't do it. And the two most valuable things I hold concerning my father 
are these. A few months before he died of cancer, I was president of the Louisiana Convention, and I left presiding at that meeting and flew to, to Dallas, where Dad was to undergo another surgery. And we stood in a circle and prayed. And I looked at my daddy and I said, I love you, Daddy. And he said, I love you, son. First time. Nothing. No award. And I've got awards there in boxes. No award means to me what that is. When I went to seminary, graduated, Dad didn't come. But he sent me a telegram. It's framed, it's on my wall back here in my office. It's my most valuable possession because he was able to say on a telegram at least, what he could never say to me face to face. I don't care who you are. You need to hear a father say, that's my child. You're my boy. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I'm proud of you. Nothing is more powerful. The good news is, no matter what kind of earthly father you have, you have a perfect heavenly father. who loves you unconditionally. You're not on a performance basis. Who knows everything there is to know about you and still loves you unconditionally. You've never done anything to cause him to love you any less. Who will never leave you, never forsake you, always be there for you, never let you down one time. who will bring into your life significance because you're his child, you're special, you're valuable, you're important. And if you have the Father's approval and the Father's love, you can handle anything. 